We will be reading from God's Word this morning, 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 19. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 19. I would remind us as we read God's Word, the teaching of our catechism in accordance with the Word, is that the Spirit of God makes the reading, but especially the preaching of the Word, an effectual means of convincing and converting sinners and of building them up in holiness and comfort through faith unto salvation. Therefore, it's incumbent upon us that we come to both the reading and the preaching of God's Word with diligence, preparation, and prayer, that we receive it with faith and love, that we lay it up in our hearts, and that we practice it in our lives. So with that exhortation, listen to this reading of God's sacred word. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial which comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or as a thief, or as an evildoer, or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God, and if it begins with us, What will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Let us pray. Father, we thank you and praise you for your blessed word of truth. And we do ask, O Lord, that you would be pleased to teach us from your word, that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see, that we might behold wondrous things from your law. Father, we look to you and to you alone, for it is only by your spirit that your word is open to us and made understandable, and it is only through that illumination that we grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So, Lord, I ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable in thy sight, for it's in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I'd like to express my thanks to Pastor Medcalf and the session here at Providence for inviting me down. Actually, most of the time that Pastor Medcalf invites is in the summertime when I am traveling for the OPC, uh, actually in a couple of weeks, and you can keep this in prayer, I'll be heading off to Switzerland and Austria to work with the Evangelical Reformed Church, uh, Westminster Confession in those uh, two countries. Regrettably, the Lord in his good providence has prevented and hindered my traveling into Ethiopia. Uh, for the last year or so, Uh, not so much because of the COVID virus that's going on, but because of all the civil unrest that is happening uh, in that particular nation. 
as the elder referred to, Malaku Solomon, who was here at the dedication. Malaku is a man that I've worked with in the Ethiopian church since 1999. He is a dear brother in the Lord, and as we have him in our presbytery at this time to work among refugees in the Atlanta area, uh, God has richly blessed us. Please pray for his family. His wife just had uh, their third child, a daughter. He has two sons and now uh, a little daughter, and uh, she is being raised. It's interesting, children being raised in a third world country or in a mission country, uh, they really have no home. They live in a home that is of one culture. They live in a country that's of another culture, and they're, so they're called third world children. And in a lot of ways, Malaku's children are the same. They live in a home with one culture, they live in a country with another culture, and they don't really know where they fit in. So keep them in prayer. We are going to be looking at the first epistle of Peter. First Peter chapter 4, in particular, verses 12 through 19, looking at the subject of Christian suffering under the title, When Christians Suffer. Now, there's one thing I would make as a comment at the very beginning of this, just like the Apostle Paul taught Timothy that all who will live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. All Christians will suffer in one form or another many times throughout their lives on that journey to the celestial city. And Peter is writing in this particular historical context to Christians who are scattered throughout Asia Minor. He's writing toward the end of his life. We know that from his pen will come one more epistle, the second epistle of Peter to the churches of Asia Minor. But in this particular case, he is writing because they are on the brink of the destruction of the nation of Israel and Jerusalem and the temple. We know that the temple was destroyed in 70 A.D., and that as a result of that, Christians would begin to come under great persecution and suffering throughout the empire. As my children were growing up through the years, and I was always leaving on trips to Africa or to uh, someplace in the world, I always thought about that idea of what would be the last thing I would want my children to remember me saying if God in his good providence was pleased to take me to heaven and not bring me back to my earthly home. And I used to sit down with each one of them and tell them something that I thought would be beneficial for them in the face of my absence. Well, in one sense, that's exactly what Peter is doing here as a senior elder in the church of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He is living at that time when God is slowly removing the apostolic witness. The canon of the New Testament is being completed. The apostles are beginning to be persecuted and will begin to die through martyrdom and, and John's case, old age. And the church would no longer have the presence of the apostles. And Peter, recognizing that very thing, begins to pen these last letters. These last instructions 
to the people of God as to give them encouragement. Remember, one of the things he says in this epistle is he, he says, I said this before, and I'm saying it again, but I don't regret saying it again, because it is to your benefit to remember these things over and over. You know, sometimes we're tempted not to want to read our Bible because we said we've read it before. We know what it says. There are those words. We've read it enough times that we can quote many of these texts. We can uh, think about their content in our lives. And yet God has been pleased to place these things in written form under the inspiration of his Holy Spirit so that we can constantly be reminded of that instruction, which is not tedious for God, but is helpful to us. And so Peter is writing this letter. And as he comes to the end of this letter, and he's already talked briefly about the subject of suffering, Peter writes and says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you. Christian suffering is a fact of our Christian lives. We will suffer. And Peter is going to outline for us that fact that as Christians we suffer, how we suffer, why we suffer, and what we are to do when we suffer. Why we, or how we suffer, why we suffer, and what we are to do when we are in the midst of these fiery trials and tribulations. How do Christians suffer? Well, first of all, the Bible teaches us that we suffer as a result of an inward battle that goes on among us as we are being sanctified by the Spirit of God. The Apostle Paul, in that section of the book of Romans, chapter 6 through chapter 8, talks about Christian sanctification, that work of the sanctifying spirit as he teaches us, as he leads us, as he strengthens us to say no unto ungodliness and yes to holiness as we put off the old man and put on the new man as we no longer yield our body as instruments to unrighteousness, but we yield ourselves as instruments to unrighteousness. And the Apostle Paul says to us there in chapter 7 that there is a warfare that goes on in the life of a believer. There is that which I would not do and that I do. And there is that which I would do, I do not. So that I find within my members this warfare as the spirit fights against the flesh and the flesh fights against the spirit. Now that is a form of suffering. Think about it in this way. Our Lord and Savior, when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, the Bible tells us that in that struggle, in those words that Jesus uttered, not my will, but thy will be done. There was physical suffering as a result of the internal warfare that, in a sense, went on in our Lord. If the Bible tells us that it was of such an extent that he sweated blood and the angels had to come minister to him physically. 
You see, there was the temptation. Jesus, as God incarnate, could call the hosts of heaven down and rescue him and not go through that painful, shameful, agonizing death upon a cross. As the writer of Hebrews will tell us, he learned obedience by the things that he suffered. So there's that internal warfare that goes on among us. We recognize that warfare, that suffering internally. When we are tempted to do something, when we know we ought not to do it. And we struggle. We say to ourselves, if I do it, then this will happen. If I don't do it, then I continue to struggle within my heart. And we're often willing to give in in that particular struggle. In fact, I would go so far as to say that the Bible teaches us that as an individual, if you don't experience that internal struggle, that striving against sin, then we have to ask ourselves the question, have we really been given a new heart, a heart of flesh? And has the heart of stone been removed from us? So that is a form of suffering that all Christians will go through. But the apostle is, in this particular text, more concerned with those persecutions that will come upon the people of God. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering that you may also Uh, rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. So he talks about a persecution, and in this particular context, a verbal persecution, being insulted. All who will live godly in Christ Jesus shall be insulted. In fact, it's always funny to me when someone as looks at me as a Christian and says, well, there is an ignorant man, or there is a foolish man, or there is an irrational man, or there is someone who needs a crutch, someone who needs something other than his own strength, his own mind, his own determination, his own will. And my answer to that is simply, yes, that's all true. I do need a Savior because I am hopelessly and helplessly undone without one. I do need one that I can lead upon, that I can lay a hold. And in actuality, the Bible says, I'm not the fool. I'm not the one who is irrational. I'm not the one who is insane, but it is the fool who has said in his heart, there is no God. You see, the foolish one is the one who says, I don't need God, or that there is no God, or I can do this all on my own, because he cannot. But they will insult us, and they will bring mental anguish upon us. I remember as a child, My father reminding me at one point, because some children were making fun of me, 
And he says, you know, sticks and stones will break your bones, but names will never hurt you. And I looked and said, Dad, that's not true. Names do hurt. When they call you vile things, when they speak evilly against you, it hurts. Sometimes I wish that they would use sticks and stones because they were easier to fight back against than the insults that brought that mental anguish and torment that caused me to lay awake at night asking myself that question. Am I really what they say I am? Or am I something different? Well, in the same way, we suffer that insult, that mental anguish that comes upon us because they, they have looked with scorn upon us. They have called us or cast us aside, as it were, as the refuse of this world. And yet, there is also that physical violence. You see, these believers in Asia Minor would go through all these persecutions. There would be that verbal, that mental, that physical violence against their person. We know under the reign of Nero that hundreds and hundreds and thousands of Christians were martyred for their faith. And you don't think that that wasn't hard? Listen, my friends, God gives us grace to sustain whatever trial or tribulation that he will take us through. But that doesn't mean that the trial or the tribulation will be easy. It'll sustain us, but it won't take away the pain. It'll sustain us, but it doesn't always take away the anguish. It shall sustain us, but it doesn't take away that feeling of persecution, recognizing and realizing that we are suffering for the name of Christ. But there's a third way that Christians suffer, and that's what I would call natural suffering. And for the last year and a half, this is one of the areas that we in the church of our Lord and Savior has suffered. We have a disease, that disease, coronavirus, that has circled the earth, circled the earth almost as quickly and as thoroughly as the internet circles the earth. And it's brought many into great suffering. Even in our own denomination, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, we've had many of our members get this disease. Some of them terribly. Some of them who described it as being led by Jesus to the valley and the shadow of death. One of our ministers in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church wrote in a letter that just appeared in the New Horizons about his experience 23 days in the hospital with coronavirus. A young man, no prior physical condition that would have precluded that he was going to suffer in the way that he did. And his description of that was, as I passed through the valley in the shadow of death, under the pain, the anguish, the torment, I recognized that Jesus was with me, but it was still a time of suffering, anguish, and pain. There are those famines, those earthquakes, those destructions. We're not exempt from any of those. Even as the Bible and our catechism teach us that we are subject to all the miseries of this life, we go through these times together. 
and then even death, which is unnatural to us as those created in the image of God. That separation of the body and the soul that comes when this mortal shall lay in the dust waiting for the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is part of the persecutions, is part of the sufferings of this life. We are subject to all the miseries of this life, to death itself, but through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, not to the pains of hell forever, but still subject to the miseries of this life and to death itself. As Christians, we will suffer. The question is, why do Christians suffer? Why does God, in his sovereign providence, permit, ordain, allow, order his children to suffer? Well, the first answer to that question is because he is sovereign to do with with us as he so chooses. Only God knows what he has ordained for our life. Only God knows the number of our days. Only God knows what we need as people, as those who are followers of Jesus, exactly what we need to make us like himself. Remember, the Bible tells us that sanctification is actually the work of God's Spirit making us like Jesus. We call ourselves Christian. And the definition of a Christian is one who is like Christ. And God knows exactly what we need to make us like Christ. Sometimes what we need is sandblasting. Sometimes what we need is light polishing. Sometimes what we need is the chisel. Sometimes what we need is fine sandpaper. But God always knows exactly what we need to shape us, mold us, and make us like our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And so the Bible says through the Apostle Peter, Think it not strange when you suffer. It's not out of the ordinary. It's not something extraordinary in the life of the believer. It is something that is common. And what our focus should be on is not the suffering, but the sovereign God who is shaping, molding, sculpturing, creating us in the image of Him whom we love so dearly. One of the things that often I'm asked in the last year or so is why I think God has allowed this plague to come upon the nations of men. And the often what's behind the question is this idea that somehow maybe God has lost control. That somehow maybe God is, doesn't know really how to react to this particular situation. Well, I answer that question by quoting the uh, catechism second petition, the answer to the second petition. What, God is, what is God doing? God is destroying the kingdom of Satan. He is advancing the kingdom of grace, bringing us and others into it and keeping us in it, and he is hastening the kingdom of glory. 
God has not lost control. God is the sovereign over the suffering of this world. He has his own purposes for each and every individual in the midst of that. For those who are his people, to make them more like Jesus. For those who are not his people, to expose them in their unbelief that they might see their lostness and cry out unto him who is able to save utterly and completely. He is sovereign. He controls all things because he is Lord of heaven and earth. And he holds us in the palm of his hand. Why do Christians suffer? Secondly, to show us our need of God. To show us our need of God. 2 Corinthians 1, 8 through 10, the Apostle Paul, speaking to the Corinthians, tells them that one of the reasons why they suffer is to remind them not to be self-reliant, but to be God-reliant. To rely upon the Lord. God's grace is sufficient. Paul says, whether I abound, whether I'm abased, whether I'm suffering, whether I'm sitting comfortably in my own home, no matter what case, I have learned to be content because God is faithful. God is all that I need. Heaven and earth will pass away. God's word will endure forever. And God's saving grace will always be near and at hand so that we can call upon him. Listen, there is the natural tendency in young people to forget their dependence upon their parents way before it's time. And I can testify to that. When they're younger, they know, boy, I need mom and dad to make sure there's food on my table and clothes on my back and a roof over my head and a comfortable bed to sleep in. But when I hit my teen years, it was kind of like, they're not so important anymore. I can go out and get a job. I can make money. I can find my way to the McDonald's or the Taco Bell. I don't need them to supply food. I don't have to be reliant upon them anymore. Why should I ask their permission to go someplace? I can make up my own mind. And we as Christians often find ourselves in that place. As God blesses, we suddenly forget all about Him. We don't pray for that wisdom from on high. We don't seek His face. David, a holy man of God, was judged by God in a certain situation because he did what? He failed to seek God's wisdom. What did he do instead? He told Joab, go out and number all the men in our army. They've got this many. We've got this many. We got it. We can take them. And they lost terribly. Even Job warned him, said, God said, don't number the men. God said, rely upon him. Put your hope and your trust in him. And David, as the king of Israel, said, listen, God's blessed me so many times before. Why won't he bless me again? Why won't he just let me go out and do this? And it brought great destruction and death upon the armies of Israel because David failed to see his need of God in every and all circumstances. That there is only one true wisdom and it is not the wisdom of men. It is the wisdom of God. 
There is only one true strength, and it's not the strength of the horse and the chariot, but it's the strength of the living and true God. There is only one rock of defense, and it's not the rockets of this world, but it's the rock which is Jesus Christ. So why does God allow us to suffer? To keep us near him. To keep us near him. Again, as a young boy, on first years that I used to go backpacking with my father, my father was a bit older than I was. I had a little bit more energy, so my natural tendency was to keep running, to keep running, getting way ahead of him. And he kept yelling at me, come back, don't get so far ahead, you're going to get lost. And I didn't pay attention. So what he ended up doing was hiding himself behind a tree. He knew right where I was, but I suddenly turned around and had no idea where he was, and I started looking around, calling his name, going back down the trail, looking for him uh, everywhere. And finally, he stepped out from behind the tree. And when he did, I said, oh, good, I found you. I thought you were lost. And he just kind of chuckled and looked at me. In my ignorance, what I said to him afterwards was, well, I'm going to stay close to you so you don't get lost again. And he looked at me and he said, that's a good idea. Well, you know what? God lets us out there sometimes. He gives us a little bit more leash. And he does it for the simple reason of bringing us back to himself, making us close to him. Now, we might ignorantly think, well, i got to stay close to God so he doesn't get lost. But the real reason is we got to stay close to him because it's my propensity to get lost. Remember the hymn writer wrote, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. I am, as a sinner, even redeemed, prone to wander. Prone to leave the God I love. And in that proneness, what God does is He causes suffering to come into my life, to discipline me, to come back and to be close to Him, to stand by His side. You've seen that picture, probably, of Jesus carrying a lamb. And people have often said, I would like to be that lamb that is being carried by Jesus, the good shepherd. You know why shepherds carried lambs like that? It's because that lamb was prone to wander. And what the shepherd would do is he'd break the leg of the lamb. And while that leg healed, he would carry him on his shoulders. So that when he finally was healed and could walk again, put him on the ground that lamb would not leave the shepherd's side. Sufferings in our lives as Christians often is to break our leg to keep us near to God, to keep us close to Him. Peter tells us also in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and following, that suffering's purpose is to grow us in grace, especially in faith, humility, and assurance. Faith, humility, and assurance. Chapter 1, beginning at verse 6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, 
more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible, filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. In other words, suffering is like exercise to the muscles of the body. When we suffer, God is exercising us, strengthening the spiritual muscles of the spiritual man. He's causing us to grow in grace. He's causing our faith to grow. When does faith grow? It doesn't grow when it's receiving that which it has faith in, but it grows when faith thinks that that which it desires is far away. You see, it's nothing to have faith when everything's going well. I'm prospering. I've got good health. There's no divisions in my family. Things are going well at work. It's easy to have faith. It's not so easy to have faith when the trials and the tribulations come. Things aren't going well at work. Things aren't prospering the way that I would hope. There are divisions in the family. There are those things that we recognize as trials and tribulations. That's when it is necessary to say, Lord, I believe. Help thou my unbelief. Lord, my faith is weak. Grow it. Make it strong that I might trust you all the more. Even in these dark times. The Bible says why Christian suffers is to prevent sin. To prevent sin. Now think about it in this way. Why Christians suffer to prevent sin. One of my sons, when they were younger, went running out to the street. Now, I tried to teach my children as they were growing up that they were to be obedient at my first word. Not my second, not my third, not my fourth, but my first word. And if they weren't obedient in my first word, then they would get spanked. Now, one day, one of my sons said to me, well, Daddy, why do you spank us like that? I said, because if I have to say to you something twice, it might be detrimental to your life. If you're running down the driveway, heading out into the street when a car's coming, if I have to say to you three times to stop before you stop, you might already be out in the street and run over by the car. Therefore, I want you to learn obedience. I want you to learn obedience at my first command. And to make sure that you learn it at my first command, I inflict you with pain so that you don't want that pain. So when I say stop, you stop. That's what God does with our own sufferings to prevent sin. You see, God sees us running down the road. He sees all of our lives. He knows the inner workings of our very heart and mind. He knows our motives. 
He knows the number of hairs on the top of our head. He knows it all. And He knows that there are times in our lives when our decisions, when our directions are leading us to peril and hardship and chastisement that He wants us to avoid and learn. And so He causes us to suffer. He chastens us gently. My father used to say to me, you've got to learn things the hard way. God doesn't want us to learn things the hard way. He wants us to learn things the easy way. Sometimes he chastens us with suffering because of sin. If I go speeding down the road and I get a speeding ticket and I say, Oh Lord, why did I get this speeding ticket? Because that's a form of suffering. i got to go pay a fine. i got to go to the court. i got to do this. i got to do that. God says, well, you were sinning. It's not like you got this speeding ticket because you weren't speeding. We bring God's chastening rod and suffering upon ourselves. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 1, 3 and following that we sometimes suffer so that we might help others who suffer. We go through trials and tribulation not simply for our own sake but so that we might minister to others in the body of Christ who are going through suffering. And then lastly, God allows suffering in the life of the believer so that he might experience greater glory. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. You're blessed. To be insulted. You're blessed to suffer. In fact, your suffering, according to Peter, is a sign that the spirit of glory is resting upon you. It is not a sign that somehow God has castigated you, that God has thrown you out, that God has separated himself from you. No, when we suffer as Christians, we know that the spirit of God, the spirit of glory, rests upon us. So what do we do when we suffer? What should be our response in our suffering? Well, Peter answers those questions a little bit later in this book, in chapter 5, beginning at verse 6. He says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at a proper time he may exalt you. Cast all your anxieties upon him, because he cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Be firm in your faith, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your brothers and sisters Throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while. The God of all grace. Who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ. Will himself restore. Confirm. Strengthen. And establish you. To him be the dominion. Forever and ever. Amen. See Peter says to these Asian believers. You're going to suffer. Their brethren all over the world are suffering. 
And this is to be your response, not murmuring, not complaining, not doubting, not giving up, but be humble. Be humble. Humble yourself under the hand of God. We pray in the Lord's Prayer, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that is a petition of humility. That we humble ourselves under God's providence. We don't complain about it. We don't argue with God about it. We don't doubt God in it. But we humble ourselves and we say to God, You do all things. You do all things well. For you work all things together for good. The trials, the tribulations, the sufferings as well as the joys, the happiness. You work all things together for good to those that love you and are called according to your purpose. Be humble. Realize that these sufferings come from the hand of a living God who seeks not to destroy you, but as the text says here, to bring you to his eternal glory. 1 Peter 5, 7, cast your cares upon Him because He cares for us. God is not unsympathetic to us in our trials and tribulations, in our sufferings. Remember the Bible has said, God learned obedience through the things that He suffered. He was tempted in all points as we are, yet without sin. He knew the cost of obeying God's word. The cost was a cost of the painful, shameful death upon Calvary's cross. He learned obedience through the things he suffered. He knows what it means to be obedient. And so we can cast upon our cast our cares upon him because he knows our frame. He knows our weakness. He knows who we are. One of the great glories of understanding that doctrine of particular redemption is not simply that Christ died for some sea of humanity, but Christ died on Calvary's cross for me, for you. It was not Him simply saying, Lord, I die for some amorphous group of people. He said, I am dying for Tony. I am dying for Sally. I am dying for Ruth. I am dying for this one, for that one. Their sin is the sin placed upon my shoulders. He cares for us. And as he sits in heaven as my intercessor, it is not an intercession just for some vague group of people. He intercedes on my behalf. He intercedes on your behalf. He names us by name. He knows the number of hairs on the top of our head. He knows us. And because he knows us and who and what we are, The Bible says we can cast our cares upon him because he cares for me. Not just some blank personality, but for me as a follower of Jesus Christ. Thirdly, we're to withstand the evil one who roams around 
like a roaring lion seeking who he may devour. What Peter is basically saying to the believers here is, greater is he that is within you than he that is within the world. You can resist the evil one. You can say no to ungodliness and worldly loss, and you can live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present evil age, because greater is he that is within you than he that is within the world. There is nothing that can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Nothing in heaven, nothing on earth, nothing under the earth, nothing present, nothing past, nothing future. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. So when the evil one comes and he tempts us to despair, he tempts us to murmur and complain, he tempts us to be angry, we can say no, we can resist him. And he will flee from us. He goes on then to say at the end in verse 17. But it's time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God be? And if the righteous scarcely be saved, what will become of the godly and sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Trusting the Lord with all our heart. Trust the Lord with all your heart. And lean not unto your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your path. Even through the valley of humiliation. Even through the valley of the shadow of death. Upon every high mountaintop, in every low valley, God will direct our every step and keep us on our every way. That is what the Christian is to do when he finds himself in the midst of suffering. But there's another aspect in which the Bible tells us That we are to equip ourselves so that we fare as those who are believers in Jesus Christ in a way that is glorifying to God. And that's through the means of grace. You see, God gives us the means of grace not because He just wants us to have something to do when we come together in a worship service. I mean, how boring would it be if we all just came in and sat here so... It's kind of like saying sometimes when my wife is going to do a party for our grandchildren, or she'll say, well, we've got to do something. We've got to have some kind of game. We've got to have some kind of activity, or they're going to get bored. Well, God, God is not giving us all these things to keep us from getting bored when we come to church on Sunday morning. They are means of grace. And those means of grace, we're told, is the reading the preaching of His Word, prayer, and the sacraments. And in particular, for us in our lives, this sacrament of the Lord's table. It is a sacrament by which God, according to His Word, feeds the spiritual man to make us strong, so that as we go through this life, whether I'm walking downhill, on level ground, or up, a mountain in Switzerland.
Jerusalem, I have the strength necessary to carry me to the destination, to get me to the goal. When I hike in the Alps, I'm always carrying power bars of some kind. I always have some Gatorade or something like that along with me to keep myself strong and able to reach the top, the goal to which I'm going. And God wants us to reach the end. So he's given us these means of grace to feed our soul, to feed our spiritual man, so that we might be able, by God's grace, reach and attain that end which is likeness to Jesus. Remember the Apostle John says, Brethren, it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know this. We will be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. And that's what God is doing. He is making us like Jesus, and He's given us these means so that by His grace we might obtain that very thing that He has promised to us, and that is likeness to Christ. So when I read God's Word, I'm being changed into the likeness of Christ. When I hear the preaching of God's Word, I'm being changed into the likeness of Christ. When I come to the Lord's table, the sacrament that Jesus has given to us, I am being changed into the likeness of Christ. Strengthened, motivated, Push to go on. So the Apostle Paul, in writing to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, wants to emphasize the importance of this sacrament. And he says to us in that chapter, on the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body which is broken for you, eat this in remembrance of me. In like manner also he took the cup and he blessed it, saying, This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. As often as you drink it, you do proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now notice what he says there. First of all, it is an institution of Jesus Christ. Christ is the one who instituted this table. Not the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. Not the apostles of Jesus Christ. Not anyone else, but Christ himself. And notice when he instituted it. Remember I said Peter wrote this letter at a time when he knew his departing of this world was imminent. He knew that he would be going away. He wrote it as a final word. It is this sacrament that Jesus finally, lastly, on the night he was betrayed, gave to us. Notice what he gave to us. He gave us bread and wine. Bread and wine in the Old Testament were the sustenance of life. Read the scripture. It talks about bread and wine all through. The bread being the very uh, sustenance of, of life that gives us strength. And wine that brings joy and merriment and happiness. He brings bread and wine. It is the symbol of fullness of life. And what he gives us in this sacrament that he gave to us on the last night in which he was betrayed, he gave us a sacrament that would bring us fullness of life, fullness of joy, fullness of satisfaction. And notice what he says. 
Do this in remembrance of me. Remembrance of me. Remembrance of me when you were lost in your trespasses and sins, and I sent my Holy Spirit to woo you, to draw you, to bring you unto myself, that you who are estranged and lost might be found. You who had no hope might find hope. You who were without uh, life might have life abundantly into the full. Do this in remembrance of me. But also, do this in remembrance of me. The work of my Spirit as He sanctifies you daily. As He makes you more and more like me. As I have sent Him to be your shepherd, your comforter. That paraclete who would come alongside and bring you through all the trials, the tribulations, the suffering. Because I am a God who is near you. I am a God who neither sleeps nor slumbers. I am a God who is an ever-present help in the time of need. I am the one who sustains you day by day, every day. Just like your daily food sustains your physical body, this spiritual food sustains your spiritual life. Do this in remembrance. But he also says, do this in remembrance of that which is to come. When I shall take away that mortal and clothe it with immortality. When I shall take away that in that corruption and clothe it with incorruption. When this mortal shall put on immortality and this corruptible shall put on corruption. And that I will make you like me for you shall see me as you are. That day when you'll be openly acknowledged and acquitted and made perfectly blessed. You see, it's a foretaste of the marriage feast of the Lamb. A foretaste of that day when we will sit in the presence of God in heaven at His table and feast not on the perishable things of this world, but on the eternal things of heaven in the presence of God forever and ever. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. The totality of the work from bringing you out of darkness, bringing you into my inapproachable light on that day. And as we come and eat at this table, he says, and you do proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And what does that mean? It is a testimony that we have believed the gospel of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You will proclaim my death, that satisfying death, that sacrificial death, that atoning death. That death that brings reconciliation with God. For there is no other way to heaven but through the sacrifice of Christ. For there is no other name given under heaven whereby a man might be saved. Save the name of Jesus. It's our proclamation before the world. We love Jesus in all of His glory, in all of His might, in all of His intercession, in all of His promises. Because all the promises of God are yea and amen in Christ Jesus. And so Jesus invites us to come to his table. But Paul goes on in 1 Corinthians 11. He says, understanding the true nature of this table, we must come having examined ourselves. 
Now, this is not a table that's only open for the sinless. Because if it was only open for sinless, there is not a man, woman, or child in this world who would be able to come to the table. Because we're all sinners. We sin daily in thought, word, and deed. So what does it mean when Paul says that we're to examine ourselves lest we eat of this table in an unworthy manner? Well, the psalmist says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my way. And if there be any wicked way within me, lead me in the way of righteousness. That's what God wants us to do. He wants us to search our hearts, try our way, confess our sins before Him. I am a sinner. Sin is not something I do. Sin is what I am. I sin because I'm a sinner. I'm not a sinner because I sin. And I confess that. But by God's grace, I also, in my confession of sin, I turn from it. I call upon Him through the strengthening of this sacrament to enable me to say no to that ungodliness and worldly lust that I may live soberly, righteously, and godly before Him all the days. This table is open to sinners. Sinners who have repented of their sin, who call upon His name, who have been baptized and are part of the visible church of our Lord and, Jesus, the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ under His sovereign kingship. But secondly, it's not a private meal. In other words, it's not just me coming to the table. It's the people of God coming to the table. We come as a family. We come as the family of God. We come as the household of faith. We come as the kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So the Bible says in Matthew 5 that if we come to the altar of God and we realize that our neighbor has ought against us, or that we have ought against our neighbor, we're to do what? We're to leave our offering at the altar. We're to go and be reconciled to that one and then come back and present our sacrifice before the Lord. And so therefore, it's incumbent upon us, as the people of God, that if we have ought against one another, that we break not the spirit of unity in the bond of peace, but that we go and be reconciled, and then together as the people of God, come and partake of this family meal. This family gathering. This family celebration in anticipation of that day when the whole family of God will be gathered unto our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So let's take a few moments and search our hearts and try our ways. And if there be any wicked way within us, let us confess that before the Lord. If there be aught between us, let us be reconciled together and then come to the table of Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Gracious God and Father, we do come before you at this table today. 
come as those confessing our need of a Savior because we are sinners. We sin against you daily in thought, word, and deed. We have not loved you with all of our heart, our soul, our mind, our strength. We have not loved our neighbor as ourselves. And on those two commandments, Lord, we realize that we have broken all of your moral law summarized for us in the Ten Commandments. And so we pray, Lord, search our hearts and try our way. And if there be any wicked way within us, lead us in the way of righteousness. We come as those confessing, O Lord, because we believe that if we confess our sin, that you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Father, we come to this, your table, as hungry children, knowing that as we would ask of you an egg, you would not give us a serpent. As we ask of you bread, you would not give us a stone. Father, if we ask of you good things, you would not give us bad things, but that you would hear us and bless us and give us all that we need. And so, Father, we come and we pray today that this fruit of your field and the fruit of your vine might be unto us for its intended use, that by faith our spiritual man might feed upon the body and blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And oh, how we thank you and love you. There is no God like unto thee in heaven above or in the earth beneath. And for this we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.